Hi everyone, welcome to 5 Days with Doug. I am Doug Perkins. Today we're going to have a great chat with Tim Monroe, a really great friend who uh, we toured with for a couple of years, and I've known him for probably 10 years now. Uh, yeah, he's talented, opinionated, really wonderful, and uh, we have a concert this week at Constellation in Chicago on the 26th. So if you're hearing this, you should come and see the Me and Perkins duo play some stuff and then see Tim uh, do a set of solo music. It's going to be really great. Well, anyhow, this meeting of sharing a stage on Friday sort of um, inspired me to get together and talk to him. Since I'm starting this podcast, we he's I guess it's his fault in a way that I'm doing this podcast. When we were on the road, we would spend many hours in coffee shops trash-talking our lives and talking about you know, what things we like to listen to as people who spend a lot of time with earbuds in our ears, traveling through airports and stuff. And so we got to talk about podcasts and our desires to do them. And based on that, um, he gave me the courage to try to, to make something happen. So anyhow, without further ado, here is my man, Tim Monroe. Hi, friend. <laughs> okay, so hi. So here we are. Um, thanks for doing this. Um, I think this is going to be my first episode of my podcast called Five Days with Doug. And hopefully it'll come out even like tomorrow. So just to tell you, well, to tell everybody, um, this is a two-part uh, podcast because I interviewed Tim for my first episode of this seven months ago gosh that long ago six or seven months ago um and i did nothing with the material um but then this week tim and i have a gig so i figured instead of practicing for my gig why not figure out how to post podcasts but since it's with tim it seemed like a nice chance to get together and have a chat um so here we are. So also for those listening, stay tuned for next week when you'll hear what Tim thought he would be up to uh, <laughs> from seven months ago. Um, and as we've talked before, I guess, well, for everybody, I guess some of the thesis of the podcast is I, as a point of, as a point of departure, um, the reason it's called five days is I ask people about how they get through their week. So like what you've been up to for the last five days as a point of departure to talk about, um, more than the last five days, hopefully much more than that. Um, so what have you been up to, Tim? Well, thank you, Doug. It's a <laughs> pleasure to be back. I, w I think I'll start by actually zooming out and considering this week in the context of what I thought I would be doing with this week. When I last talked to you, I imagine, I don't know if this is what I would have said, but I would imagine that I thought I would be doing no things and then I would be scrambling to find either finding work or scrambling to fill my days with projects and practice. But actually, I'm just as busy, if not more busy, than I ever have been. Um, and it's all things that have come up at the last minute. It's this, this new world for me of the freelance world, although people encourage me to call it like that I'm an independent artist. Okay, that's nice. But the nice thing is that the last five days... 
in the way that they've been emblematic of what I've been doing in the sense that every day I'm doing at least four different sorts of activities. Right. So in every day I've been writing professionally, I've been either speaking professionally or preparing for speaking engagements. I've been working on solo repertoire and I've been preparing chamber music. That sounds great. So it's like a kind of dream sort of scenario, which is really wonderful. It still all feels like total chaos and like this might be the last possible week that I ever have work ever, which I think is like the typical freelance thing. Right. Um, Also, there was like a little bit of the the final shockwaves of the thing that happened a week ago, which is that 8th Blackbird won its fourth Grammy, which was my third Grammy, which was fabulous and so surreal as it always is. Um, And of course, I had mixed emotions as someone who is no longer a member of that illustrious ensemble. But everyone was such a everyone was such a great sport. It was great in the ensemble about me being there and like we all had a good time. This was the year that uh, that no Australian won a Grammy except for me. Oh yeah, saw you in the paper. So I got a weird thing in this in a couple of national newspapers, That's awesome. and I like ha- was interviewed by a childhood hero of mine on a national TV program. Um. So there was like all of that, which was just so incredibly glamorous and everyone who I talked to just imagined my life as incredibly glamorous and filled with red carpets. And and then I just like went back to my cat and my computer and tried to like imagine what I would even be, how I would even earn money next month. Right. So that, yeah. Um, well, that's so many things. Uh well, that's great. Uh, I saw you had. I saw your pictures at the Grammys, and congrats. I feel like I sent you a text, but officially, congratulations. Um, did Julie have fun? Did your wife have fun? Yeah, Julie was psyched to go. She was I- interested in whether I would win or not, but mostly she was there to see Taylor Swift. Yeah, and did you, so did you get good sightings? Who didn't? We did. I mean, we we're always we're just like so far away from the actual famous people. We're just like eating our California pizza kitchen and not able to drink any alcohol, <laughs> just in like the sad stalls. But anyway, it was it's still an amazing show. I, she found it fascinating because she's a theater producer, and from that perspective, watching what goes watching into the production to it. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's like we we counted in the in the credits at the end of the telecast there are 30 stage managers that makes sense it's preposterous totally preposterous well because probably certain acts need a whole stage manager to themselves yeah oh yeah absolutely and also we happened to be walking backstage going from one thing to another thing backstage at the main arena and there were 20 drum kits Set up. Oh, at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that we saw, like, right. lined up in a row, all with, like, you know, different sorts of axes kind of, like, hanging off the edge of them. But it's just, you know, to get a sense of what that immense production is. That's great. And um, was it... Um, how was your... Uh, as, a, as a therapist, how, how was your... Um, 
Ace Blackbird heart feeling? Was it just a fun high five victory lap with, with your old mates or were, was there any, was there any wistfulness or, um, Oh, there was so much wistfulness. I think, um, for me, the, the strange part was that it was the first album that I had very little to do with in terms of the actual production. Right. You were kind of a session player. Okay. Everybody yeah. needs to know that also, um, Tim's cat gizmo is climbing all over me this whole interview. So he just pretty much jumped on my head as I asked that question and then scared both of us, maybe the whole room. Anyhow, yeah, so back to you. You were, yeah, you basically just came in and played the session because that was your last duty. No, it was not. This was not even my last duty. Oh, I this was this a record before more. the record. I was yeah. thinking about the... This album was, was not intended originally for release. Like the recording was not intended for for commercial release, but it came out really well and... We happened upon this this like almost perfect performance of this Philip Glass piece right. from a, a live performance that we'd done, and it all just like came together and knitted it together in a nice way. So I, yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I really, I felt. Um, I felt proud to be part of the ensemble and to be part of the experience. And I felt comfortable with having left the group in a way that like I, I was not expecting. I, I, was an, I was anticipating all sorts of very complicated mixes of emotions, but it was actually just like kind of a fine, fun day. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And then uh, how long were you in LA? Just a couple of days. Stayed with friends, saw some stuff, went to see the LA Philharmonic's latest like huge video extravaganza. Oh, cool. Yeah. It was, uh, yeah, it was a nice trip. And then um, to go back to your list of many things that you're doing these days, um, tell me about your public speaking. What are you doing for public speaking? I didn't expect to hear that one. Well, so I've been doing pre-concert talks for the Chicago Symphony for about five years. And I'm, I'm trying to increase the amount of those things that I do for the organization because I re- it's something I really enjoy. And it's something that I understand that I have like a somewhat different approach than most of their usual speakers. Um, and it's just really nice because I'm no longer a member of 8th Blackbird and in 8th Blackbird, I would speak in the course of concerts or days on the road or education work so much that it's like, it's an important muscle to keep, to keep like, you know, um, worked, work, to keep the muscle Keep it strong, strong, keep it fit. Keep it fit. So yeah, no, it's, it's, that is, that is a passion for me. It's actually the thing that makes me the most nervous in the world. I would be petrified. I mean, I liked, I also, I share your love of talking. Um, how the heck did you get into that with the symphony and how, how much preparation goes into something like that for you? I had first done pre-concert thingamajigs in Australia when, before I joined 8th Blackbird. Um, Is that with Brisbane? It was in Brisbane and it was in Sydney and it was in Tasmania as part of like, sometimes as part of other jobs and sometimes sort of basically like freelance gigs. Um, And 
it has always taken me a lot of preparation. It's the sort of thing that now I've gotten down to basically like either two completely solid days of like 10 hours a day work or eight hours a day work, or I can spread it over a week. Um, but like, oh, ideally it's a full week of, it's a full week of work. And I think about it for the, the month or two previously. I'm always trying to, I'm, it's very important to me not to draw connections, but to like tell stories. And so in the context of that um, lecture, and so the story is either the story of the concert or it's a story of an artist who's in the concert, whether it's a conductor or a composer or, you know, just really trying to bring out the the emotions and the feel, the, the passion that I have for this music and, and give it a little of that to the audience. Right. So you have a thread, a thread to follow. Some sort of thread. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it never gets less terrifying. That's do people, thing. do people, do you get a lot of questions? Is it, I, it just sounds like I would be preparing for a dissertation defense. Talking, speaking, speaking expertly on behalf of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra one of about the, their upcoming performance. One of the challenges of that format is that people expect to be lectured. And early on, I tried a couple of experiments with interactive pre-concert talks. That did not go well. Because people don't expect that in that context. Uh-huh. And maybe there's a way that over a couple of years, if I'm working on many more of them and the culture shifts a little, but I think like people are going there to be like talked at. I guess if they're going, people are going to be initiated or to be given, be given a key to get in. So it's not like giving a lecture at a school with. I like that though. The key, I like the key metaphor. That's a really nice thing because there's nothing I like less than the, this is the thing that you should listen for. But I like the idea that you're giving someone a key so that they can open the door to like a really s- strong experience. Right. Yeah. It's, that seems less terrifying. I imagine you would be good at that. And that's much, that is how I make it less terrifying for me. The thing that is most terrifying is, oh, I've done this piece of disservice. Oh, I haven't said all of the things. I haven't said all of the facts. For a few of my talks, I, I just didn't talk about any of the pieces on the program at all. Like, for instance, there was a performance of Marla One and all I did was talk about a song cycle that he'd written around the same time and that was very influential when he was writing the symphony. And I talked about the kind of love that he had for this woman that was behind it all. And so I never had to kind of touch on the symphony and feel bad about like all the things I didn't say. Right. You just picked. You were producing. Yeah. And I've, I mean, I've sort of tried different approaches over the, over the time. And the way that I feel better about it all is that it's like as much a slice of me as it is a slice of the concert. And I think that will always be the case, no matter how dry and I try and make it, no matter how, you know, there's, it's almost always about um, my own journey with the, the music and the program. And I like that sense that they get like a vision into the thing that m- makes it exciting for me. And so then hopefully that can make it exciting for those people. And um, you got married recently. I did. Um, but it's occurring to me that you actually took your your future wife 
to one of your talks for your first date. Did, oh my God, you have a very good memory. Yeah, that was actually, we went on four dates in one week. And the fourth, I think, was Julie coming to see one of my talks. And then she ended up sitting next to a woman at the concert who asked her about the pre-concert lecturer. Did you hear this story? I feel like maybe at your wedding. Oh, yeah, right. And she was she <laughs> she was so excited that she and she like tapped this old woman, tapped this other woman next to her and said that Julie was like, she's his girl. <laughs> and the other woman said, for tonight. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Julie still talks about her as like, oh, my, my, my symphony best friend. That's great. Yeah. That would have been, that would have been terrifying. But I think if you can survive your, your future wife and, you know, if you got the ladies on your side, <laughs> I think you're fine. Well, I, you know, that brings up an interesting point about performance in general for me and just like any sort of audience for what I do. As soon as there's someone there that I know, it's more terrifying. I wonder whether oh. this is the same for you. I might be the opposite, actually. I love an audience I don't know. And that goes for writing, it goes for speaking, that goes for playing. I feel like I like an I feel like I like an having somebody I know in the audience. Just because then it becomes um like hanging out with friends. So sometimes yeah, sometimes it's weird, like remember playing a concert in Duluth, Minnesota, two year, I think two years ago. And um, my, my duo partner and I played a concerto with the orchestra there. And it was packed because Duluth in January were the only game in town and it's very warm in the, in the <laughs> symphony hall. So there's a couple thousand people there. And I remember playing and not knowing anybody. And then like we come off stage, we make nice with some people. And then pretty quickly I'm alone on the street with at least I had Todd. It was like really nice to have Todd there. Cause otherwise like, I was like, Oh no, who's going to, who's there. I mean, it's very comfortable and easy to play those concerts, but I almost want the, my friend in the audience who will find the thing that I did that was stupid that night. So that afterwards I will hear about there you are kicking your legs again, Doug, what's going on, buddy. You know, I like, I like, I like having the personal connection. I guess maybe if the only person I knew was like somebody I'm a fanboy for and that would be terrifying, but. Well, and having other ensemble mates on stage always filled that void for me. Right. And this, this like brings an interesting kind of point about the, the sort of anxiety that I feel like I kind of have a, a sort of low level anxiety this whole year about my work because I'm alone on stage. And so I would love a friend. I don't care whether that friend's out in the audience, but like the friend on stage that like, you know, all for one, one for all thing is really lovely. But you're, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a weird thing being the guy like it's a hundred percent me. It's a hundred percent my fault. If it doesn't go well, it's a hundred percent my fault. I mean, this is not all true, of course, but this is like a little bit, I think the mind of the freelancer or the mind of the independent artist or the soloist. It gives me a little bit of a vision into 
the life of a touring soloist, which I am most assuredly not. But the life of a touring soloist, which is always looks so glamorous and yet is just filled with um, insecurity and anxiety and terror and loneliness. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't. That like got really dark really fast. And I don't feel those. I mean, I think I've I've managed to kind of find. I always ha- I have ways to find my own kind of. Um, quiet centered space right but all of the activity i mean these last five days again all of these activities also the writing work that i've been doing i've been um i've started picking up more program note writing work um for for this is this week was for the sydney symphony orchestra that's so cool yeah it's really great and the last one that i did which was last month um when I pressed send, I entered a 24-hour whirlwind of terror where I was just convinced that, that it was the worst thing and I was backtracking in my mind of all the things I should have written, should have done better and should have... Because this was my first gig for them. Right. And because it was 100% on my back... You know, there's this sense in Eighth Blackbird, like we would screw up a little bit, but it would be like, oh, you know, it wasn't all, it wasn't just one person's issue. It you wasn't can always just, blame somebody. Right. Or you can blame the presenter or like maybe the audience wasn't in a great mood. So you can, you can blame the, but it's just like when it's you, it's like just you. But, you know, this is my second SSO program note gig. And so like, I understand that I did a good job last time and that, that my standard is a high enough standard, but it's about, it's also about like finding where your standard fits in the world. I just love that. There's um, the same level of passion and you speak with the same language as a program note person as a high level flute player. And I'm, I have to say, I feel a little bad that I haven't given, um, Occasionally you get the great the great person who writes something in, in the program. But I don't think <laughs> I give that person due love. So I hope everybody is as passionate about it as you are. That's exciting that there's some life or death about the story. It feels like programs. life or death to me only because it's the only life or death I have in my work, which is winning the hearts and minds. I, I just feel like that <laughs> is... I feel like if there is a mission for me, that's it. And anyone who writes or speaks or plays in such a way that does not have that as a core activity feels like that's how I make, I mean, it's not like it's a justification that I try and chant to myself before I go to sleep every night. So I don't cry, but it is something that is that music making needs to feel core and central and important. Well, and, Again, your job when you're when you're writing those notes, that's whether it's you're talking in the lobby or in the lobby or the name that sponsored room in the concert hall or you're in the program notes. For a lot of people, the concert begins with that. Because imagining, you know, it's interesting just on my way over here. So my parents watched Charlie Rose the other night and Alan Gilbert was on. Oh, and they were so engaged and were um, 
full of full of thoughts about the New York Philharmonic and full of thoughts about the state of the orchestra. And also my my father, who I describe a lot, is, you know, he's a tone deaf football fan who desperately tries to understand music because he loves his son dearly. Um, <laughs> but he's like, I needed a translator. What's going on? I wanted I needed I wish you were here so you could translate what he was talking about. And you are that person for the for the person who was not at our level coming in. That always that makes me so sad and a little bit mad at Alan Gilbert, who is so <laughs> eloquent and smart. Why is he not that translator? Oh, he was. I think he it's was like. Trying. Why is he? Charlie Rose doesn't know Brahms from Britney, right? I'll have to go before I go attacking Alan Gilbert. I have to go listen to the interview because, <laughs> um, admittedly, the bar from my father is is quite low. Right, right, and that's fair enough. And you <laughs> and know, you I, I'm data, like Charlie Rose. That that. That show has its own kind of... Well, it like has it, its own it's, cool... It also has like... It has an intellectual kind of... It feels like the New Yorker or something. Right. And so that that like demands a level... That does demand a level of like some technical... You know, when Alex Ross writes for the New Yorker, he will say C major. Right. Right. Which is a concept that your dad won't understand. Right, but like there is, there is kind of so that you know I'm not mad, I'm not mad, and I do terrible, I do a terrible job of things in a lot of situations. So I'm not, I, you know, it's interesting that you say that the um just this part, this just this last couple of months, the the CSO has started um, scanning people's tickets as they go into the the pre concert talks. They're oh. clearly starting to like actually gather some some data, on some them. data, and it's great. I mean, because there can be as many as two hundred or two hundred fifty people. In each talk, which rounds up to eight or nine hundred, or as mu- as many as a thousand per week, that for for whom that is their, as you say, the beginning of their experience. Right. And I hope that this means that they will think about it in terms of giving it more thought and attention. We have a playful kitty cat right now. Gizmo. We're doing good. Gizmo's doing fine. Gizmo's okay. getting a little bitey. Gizmo. And there goes Gizmo. Um. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, we'll we'll talk about five years from now at some point. But like one of the things I've been thinking about whenever I think about because you know I do it does cross my mind what I'll be doing in the in the future, and the amount of time I give to playing the flute compared to the amount of time I give to the other things in my life, and I think this was even the case when I was in Eighth Blackbird. Like the amount of time I give to the flute is so minuscule <laughs> and the amount of thought and attention I give to the other things, uh-huh. the writing and the speaking. And also another thing I haven't even brought up, which is like planning projects right. of different sizes and different sorts. Those are the things that really fire me. So I can imagine a world in five years where I'm not playing at all. I question mark. I mean, as long as I'm still getting playing gigs, it's it's something that's exciting for me. Yeah, that's a, well, that's a, I think that's a never-ending struggle for guys like us. Because for myself, when you were talking about being a soloist, I do struggle with that feeling of, you know, coming into a town with your instrument, or in my case, instruments, stepping on a stage, letting the notes speak for themselves and going away. Um you know, uh, I always talk about it as affecting change at the level of the 16th note, you know, like <laughs> when I'm going to let 
let those sounds be my my statement. That's a it's important and it's powerful. Um, but definitely, as you talk about planning projects and things, you know, I'm of course a summer can't go by these days without John Luther Adams taking over my summer travel schedule. But like right now, I'm planning some projects in Montana, and I'm making all these friends across the state of Montana right now, and we're all getting ready to do this big project though. I'll still be in Montana almost the same days as I would where I just playing a solo recital, but I think I'm, you know, just feeling the impact of the community and feeling the impact of making the connections between people to come and work together on this project. You know, to, I won't feel alone when I'm there. And in fact, the best thing that will happen is I will, by the time it's over, I will feel completely irrelevant as the state of Montana forgets I was ever involved <laughs> and fully claims credit for what happened. That's but there is a, there's an exciting, there's just an exciting community that you build. As part yeah. Of it. And that's, that's kind of fun, but that's not done behind my marimba. Um, yeah. It's such a, such a funny, I struggle with it all the time. You know, I'm teaching now, um, I'm watching other people behind instruments and I think doing good work with them using the instruments as tools for making them better musicians and better people. Um, but I still wonder, I always ask myself that same five year. Sorry, you touched a point about the five year, five years from now, still playing question mark. I feel like for me, yes, but I always wonder about it because I go from affecting change. For me, it's affecting change at the level of the 16th note behind a marimba or a drum to like, maybe I'm not playing because I am talking and getting big groups together or running large things or running organizations. Um, as you let the big ideas take over, it can squeeze out the instruments. Yeah. I mean, the big question becomes like, what is it? Who pays your rent well there's that too <laughs> and in thinking about that then my gut clenches well you're you're in a funny anxiety let's let's go back into your short-term anxiety and we'll uh great this is great we basically we've used the five days uh, moniker just so that you could look at what you're doing so that you can build up a level of anxiety so we can talk about big picture <laughs> things um well, you've gone from the you've 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 successfully now made the shift from being in a in a large and successful organization like Eighth Blackbird who plans things three three years out, five years out. There is a long range plan at 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 play there. So even though on the day to day, I'm sure if some of the people in the group were here, they would be like, "No, no, no! I'm very concerned about tomorrow." Um, they also can look at their calendars and know that there's things far into the distance. But once you uh, delete that from your iCal, you're now on the, your buffer. If Blackboard is buffered three years out, your, your video buffering is like months out, oh, weeks out. I took a gig two weeks ago on 48 hours notice. And I just took a gig on... I guess it's 14 days notice. The challenge for me is playing between, not playing in music, but like um, um, bouncing between that sort of incredibly short term planning and 
medium-term planning, which I think of as being like for next season, which I'm sort of like putting together in dribs and drabs in ways that I wish I had more attention focused on it. And then like long-term planning, which are bigger projects, which have timelines of three or four years. Bouncing between those is something that I find really challenging. In 8th Blackbird, we had all of our short-term sorted for us. Or we were sorting it, but it was like... Those were the, it, it was very clear what was in how those things were in place. We got we got those ducks in a row, but they were like almost lined up. It was all about long term planning, and so like I've I've just really struggled with a, a world in which I'm bouncing day to day in my emails. You know, in the like three hours I spend doing emails every day, bouncing between those levels. Yeah, it's an exhausting shift. Yeah, this is something that you're very familiar with. Yeah, and I'm not doing great, I don't think. Uh, I, Do you think everybody just doesn't think that they're doing great? I think they either do. I worry about the ones who think they are doing great. I think if you think you're... you, <laughs> the, the worst days for me are the day that I've like cleaned my inbox. I'm like, I got this. Oh, yeah. And then I go, no, I've just been ignoring... It's like, I forgot to open that closet and then I open I, the closet. But and, here's, the way, here's the way that I am able to have like some good mental stability in all of this is to be able to make, to be able to, to cheat myself into thinking that I, I like solved a thing. And then I can like actually sit on the couch and relax and read. And, you know, if, if we are always and constantly not done with things, then when does your brain ever switch off? Yeah, I think for me... So I need my own stupidity is what I'm saying. I I will always... I give myself little goals of like, if I have contacted five people about this thing, that is what I need to do now. Or if I have... um, Like even right now, you and I are playing um, a concert together with Music Now for the CSO in two weeks. So... I have things pressing, but every day I have to fix something in the piece we're working on. So this morning I got up and I fixed my Omglocken and I put up a Guiro in a very clever way. And I was like, improvement, that has improved the piece. And then I kind of whacked those two licks and now I can put it away for the day because rather than carrying through the day, like I have not learned the unlearnable. It's like I fixed something. Next problem how to make a podcast. <laughs> no, I'm talking to you. And once I do that, I will move on to something else. Um, but my problem is the long term. Like I, I'm pretty good at managing short term things, but how you, I feel like when you're living in the land of the, what needs done today, it's harder to sit back and have that thoughtful time of what do I want next season to look like? And what do I want two years from now to look like? I think I'm better at what do I want it three years or two years to look like. But one year is so real because you have to actually be really in the kind of final stages of putting putting things in place. That's the hard thing for me. I'm, I'm bad at reaching out. I, I also know that I'm bad at reaching out. And that's something that like your strategy of like, I need to contact five people today is something that when I have that thought is something that works for me. Right. And 
Yeah. Well, who knows? I think, I think we all, I think probably everyone we know, we, f we all fail at that. And then, you know, like the next 12 months for me does not look like I expected the next 12 months for me, nor has the last 36 months looked like I expected them to look for me. Um, but they're interesting. I'm getting also better at being like, well, it's really cool. So I'm going to just, I'm going to let it be cool. And I'm going to try to micro adjust versus like five years ago when I had less going on is when I had the time to say, what's the perfect, what is the perfect? Let right. I'm you. That's, that's, that's me at the moment. But that's such a luxury. Do you feel it? You probably don't I feel, don't it, feel it at the moment. I, January, I truly had almost nothing on for almost the entire month of January, which is the first time I've had something like that for such a long time. And I tried, you know, I really gave myself permission not to worry about things. You know, I had a couple things lined up after that and I was just like, and that was when I had that whole month was planning long-term things and thinking big thoughts and working through a lot of artistic ideas. And that was wonderful. Every day was a, was a thrill. Um, I don't know how often I'll ever have that in reality because that was that is actually what I thought March was going to be. But actually March is just like things almost back to back, which is great. Yeah, I think I will transition into your way of thinking. I, I there was a there was an interview with um, Brooke Gladstone who is re partially responsible for this show on the media, right? And NPR. And at one point she was, I mean, she's in her 70s, early 70s, I want to say, wow. maybe I late 60s. I had no idea. I would have assumed. And she was just, she had this I great quote younger. where she was just like, I just don't give a fuck anymore. I don't have, I just literally don't have any more fucks to give. And I am so excited to be in that frame of mind more so, to be able to just allow the world to take it the shape that it's going to take and affect change as you say on the micro level where i where i can actually make things happen right i don't know i mean every second week i think about like quitting music and join going into politics or going into the not-for-profit sector or going into uh, like accounting or not ever seriously but it's it's just like imagining myself at a desk is such a such a dream like I, I, I catch the same bus to work every day and I like kiss my wife hello in the evening and cook a lovely dinner together. I mean, this is just like a fantasy that does not exist in the world. Right. I think I'm, mat I think I'm mature enough to understand that that thing does not exist for any human with any happiness. <laughs> or, or, or it, in general, it's not as simple as that is what I mean. I think what's ruined it for me is um, it's the time off. I remember when I worked my desk job at the Hartford Symphony, you know, I had my two weeks off and then I could finagle personal days or invent illnesses when I had tours or things like that. But um, I remember talking to some of my musician friends who were like, oh man, I'm in Europe for 14 days right now and then I'm back and I don't know what's going on. So I, I on my weakest day when I think, I could run an organization. I'm going for it. Then I think, oh God, what? where will all the fun days go? <laughs> <laughs> but 
the, I mean, the point is to find a job that satisfies you so that your work is satisfying. And that is like the challenge that I think we're all trying to. Totally. I mean, I, I just, I've, the, the older I get, the more I realize that though musicians don't, we don't make as much as um, a high paid attorney, we are compensated in fun. And I'm trying to honor that. Like the fact that you and I get to sit here in the name of work in the middle of a middle of a Monday morning. It's true. You know, actually preparing. So one of the other things I've been doing this last week is preparing for the concert that we're sharing on Friday. And as I prepare for a show like that, which is has music by and large that I've only played, like played a couple times, you know, usually like I clench and terror blinds me and all I can think about is how I'm going to crash and burn. And I've just, I think done a really nice job of every day understanding that this is a privilege and I am in this to, for enjoyment. And because I love it. And then those things which are true infect my brain and I have a much better attitude towards it. It's hilarious. I mean, the way that um, Julie, my wife, deals with that sort of same issue in the theater is when she's really stressed out, she's like, you know, I have an amazing, I get to like help people play dress up. Like that is my job. That is like the most serious and thing that is going to happen in my job is like I get to help people play dress up. Like grown-ups play dress up. It's like not life and death. Our brains so desperately want us to feel like it's like fight or flight. Right. Yeah, it's kind of just about... It's fun. That's And part of me for what's been really great about the teaching is like... I get to go in rooms with kids with lots of energy and curiosity and we get to really, really care about really crazy music and they like want to kill for it. And then we get to just make it fun. And it's like that we're all, that we're all honoring that is, is like, is really great. And it's, it's also fun for me to talk about my students who get down on themselves when they're, talking about music and saying this is school is so hard and it's you know wanting to be down on themselves and it's like to try to help people get over that to being like no 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 you have a gift and it is your privilege to treat music like it's life and death but let us never forget that it is not life and death so use the privilege and work really hard and stay up all day and push yourself to new places but I'm just hitting things and you're blowing warm air into a piece of metal. So like, let's, you know, let's, let's just have some fun with it. Yeah. And in our lives, we will be constantly on that seesaw between those things. And that's fine. I, th- I think it's, f- it's important to a- acknowledge that it's okay to feel like it's life and death and to feel like, you know, that, that means that it's important to you and, well, and if you don't treat it like life and death, then somebody else will, and then you well, won't. And if it's not life and death to me, death to me anymore, I don't really want to do it. Question mark. I don't know. 
I want it to I want it to be as important as life and death, but I don't want it to feel like death. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, because of course it's like hard, and you're you're a married man, and you guys have a. I mean, you you and your wife are both creative people, and so you're trying to like make a family. Oof. Yeah. No. I mean, it's very exciting. We both love what we do, and. We both have the most insane schedules and this is no different to most creative people's of people are like partnered up with people in creative field in like, you know, the arts, you are an exception. Yes. But that um, comes with its own complications, I'm sure. But there's um, thinking, thinking forward about perhaps having a family and what our schedules and our incomes mean for that. I'm so ready to be a house dad house husband like just just sign me up but then you know my wife may need to then make compromises such that we're able to afford that yeah like create i mean that in the there was a big study in australia done of the arts sector and the drop-off in the number of artists over the age of 30 right it's it's I mean, it's like falling off a cliff. Um, it's no surprise. We don't get paid. By and large, the, the art sector is... There's, there's an expression in Australia that it survives on the smell of an oily rag <laughs> instead of money. It's like literally, it's just like that's how it, it functions on the smell of an oily rag. And it's vibrant and exciting and the community is large. And so that sort of, um, but it can't sustain. Anyway, it's all very complicated. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Sorry, to, to, sorry to go like more into it. diving furthest into the dark. But um, let me ask you one more dark question and then we'll, we'll go back to um, come back into the present. Uh, just because I'm curious, as as you say, you know, now you're into your life of this fast-moving, um, what do you call yourself? You're an independent artist? Someone told me I should say that. Okay. You're a fast-moving, independent I, artist. I don't, think it's, I don't think it's necessarily related to me because so much of my work is for, uh, for, lot, for like already existing organizations. I feel right. more like a... A free like that seems to me like a freelancer is somebody who works for companies like a contract. You work for you have many contracts with many companies. Yeah. Um, when when looking to the future, and I'm projecting my own feelings right now. When do you feel like if if you were here with Julie and you were having a bad day, at what month do you feel like you are done? Does that make sense? For me, like it was always like, ugh, I've I have busy through July, but in August, it's over. I've got nothing. You mean it's over? Like, like you could throw your flute. It, do you have a date in the future when you could throw your flute in the Lake Michigan and no one will notice? Oh, like I have no work after that, or date. that it feels that way. Oh, totally, August. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have smatterings of things next season, but it's like essentially... I mean, it's not true there. I have a couple of big things next season and that's really great. 
but I have no idea who's going to pay the majority of my salary next season. That is the, the real truth. I've applied for a couple of actual job jobs. Right. And we'll see what comes of those. They may be, I mean, they, 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 one may be more full-time than the other. Both keep me in Chicago. That's important. That's great. Um, yeah. I mean, the reality is that I'm still at the point where I'm putting out more things into the ether than I'm getting back. And that is fine. And I understand that that's the, the structure of things. One thing that keeps me feeling positive about my financial situation is that this year has turned out so well financially for me and that I will make... Right, you're ahead of where you thought you would be. Oh, huge. Just like way, way ahead. Like I was, I was working on a like... I mean, I was, I was at a point where when I was looking ahead and I was thinking, yeah, if I can make it like $1,000 a month. Right. When when like added to Julie's salary and I dip into savings, which I which I've like been able to you know, keep away some money in the last twenty years. Um, that that I would be fine. But I haven't had to draw on savings at all, essentially. So the thought of going into next season and maybe subsidizing two or three or four months seems not scary to me anymore which is which is good i still though i i feel that pit in my the like the 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 like sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach when i think about next season yeah totally but i i feel confident that i'm starting to understand the feeling that a freelancer has yeah, i think that's just the feeling that's yeah the feeling but like until August, I could imagine a world in which I'm working almost constantly. It may, may, may or may not sort out and there's some things, but like essentially like I'm puttering along. That's in great. a good way, in a, in a good way where I like all of the work. I'm thinking good thoughts. I'm, I'm intellectually stimulated. I'm artistically stimulated. I'm um, motivated. That's good. Yeah, that's great. It's just good to, I think for whoever might listen to this, I'm sure that a lot of people have that feeling. I've, I've been really grateful, um, you know, since, I can't remember since when we talked, if it was even happening yet, but since I've started um, teaching at Boston Conservatory, it's been really great, aside from being in Boston and brings its own complications of, I'm still flying all the time um but uh it is a it is it is something that i know will repeat it is my long-term piece of my schedule to where i think i had that constant feeling of in six months i'm completely irrelevant and will fall off the map to now at least i'm like oh yeah i've got something to do next year i'm, I'm feeling okay which is a nice change for me actually yeah, to know where you stand in just to have something. almost a year. Yeah, you know it's funny that you use that you use the terminology that like you matter or that you. I don't know if that's exactly what you said, but to me, one of the nice things about leaving Eighth Blackbird is that I'm not I'm not like the egotist I was terrified that I had become or that I was, oh, that's good. and that like actually being somehow like being prominent or being. I don't know, uh, 
being a sort of superstar in the field or whatever. That's it's just it is genuinely not important to me in a way that I found a relief. Yeah, that's great. I was like, I did not trust my brain. I uh well that's good. Now you've made me realize I've got some work to do. That's what? Now I've got work to do that I'm using that I'm using those judgment terms. I have to go do my inner therapy and some self. Some, <laughs> well, that's, that's, good. that's like good six months of therapy. Yeah, yeah. shoot. That's true. <laughs> I think I think I'm in my own head a little bit. Ah, we'll work on that. When I talk to you next, you can ask me how that's going. Yeah. You can make a note on your side of the table. <laughs> installment three. Um, well, then I guess just to wrap up, what's... Um, so we, we did... We, talked about you have been writing things you've been talking about things you've been preparing music and um well uh well no i do have one more question and then then you can tell me where you're going to play some concerts my last my last question is uh then how are how are you dealing with um managing your own schedule like when you look at over five days uh and you're home doing all of this, are you finding time to hang out with your wife and to make the meals of your dreams and to get things done? Or do you find yourself um, reading BuzzFeed articles and <laughs> election results? And well, I, I definitely do both of those things, although replace BuzzFeed with New York Times. I make Julie a priority. And because of Julie's crazy schedule, I try really hard whenever I'm in Chicago and Julie is free to make sure that I'm also free. And so that sometimes means, it doesn't mean that I'll turn down a gig, but it'll mean that I'll like, I'm just, I, it's, it's, that's an important thing for me to prioritize. The cooking is interesting because that is genuinely one of the things that I can distract myself with the best when, I'm, when my mind is buzzing. I turn on a podcast and I cook something simple or flamboyant and it's that is just like the way that i can detox so like if i do have or doing the washing up so like if i'm if i'm having a really busy day i can just simply carve out an hour to do that because it really does clear my head in a really important way um i mean how i structure my day is so uh, i only work when i'm out of the house i can't work in the house so I go to I go to co- every I have a six coffee shops that I go to every morning. I try and get up at a reasonable hour when I have either nothing else on or whether I have like things in the afternoon or and I will go to one of those six rotating coffee shops and I will just like enter into my own work zone. And then you flew to your house. Yeah, I flew to my house. One of the good motivations is that our cat really hates the flute. And as soon as I, as soon as I take the flute out of its case, Gizmo is on the other side of the house already. And since he's such a needy cat, it can be actually a really, <laughs> it can be a motivation to practice because it will like mean that I don't have. There's like an hour without Gizmo, right? <laughs> the the fl- I would like to do more flute playing. It's actually something that I'm struggling to give the priority that it deserves. Um, it's something that I thought that I was going to spend a lot more time on. I'm not beating myself up about it, but it's, it is genuinely, um, it's a little bit of a cause of concern for me that I don't, either I don't want to, or I can't prioritize it quite as much. 
I feel like it's like going to the gym for me. If I'm, if I'm not in the practice of practicing, ugh, like getting to the instruments is killing me. But when I'm, when I'm in the practice of doing it, then I can do it. I can get in a good couple hours. How do you get into the practice? Fear. <laughs> I think, uh, I think yeah. it's like, like right now, you know, so as, as you said, you and, um, well, my duo, the me and Perkins duo and, and Tim and are, we're playing a show at Constellation in Chicago on Friday. Um, so we have Todd and I are uh, resurrecting a piece we'd only played once. It's really cool, but got to learn that. And we have a new really hard piece that we're playing then going to record the day after. And then we have this music now thing, which is really hard. Then I have, um, what, uh, some contempo with eighth blackbird. It's really hard. Um, you have, you're playing a lot of stuff. So many notes. So that if I'm not, like, if I am not putting in some hours right now, I'm a dead man. But what, so then I'm getting in the practice of doing it. And then I hope once it's over that I can still find the time to kind of, I have some solo stuff I need to get working on. I'm hoping to ride that wave. Because if I, if I let it atrophy and I stop practicing, it'll, it'll take getting, getting the things rolling again. So it's being, I've at least, I'm now aware that when I'm in the zone of practice, I can stay in the zone. And when I get in the zone of emailing, I can stay in that zone just as well. I need, I need a coffee shop. I was on the road the other day and went to a coffee shop and got so much done. I don't know. There was a New York Times article about some terrible piece of research that was done into how the perfect ambience for concentration is essentially like coffee shop ambience there's the noise the sort of background noise and i just i just think it i just i can put my head down and four hours later i just don't even know where the time passed well god bless you son (laughs) (laughs) um well great well is there anything you want to tell people about yourself that you're up to or what they should look for in the next few months you want to put out a a, a motivating statement. Well, I will. Yourself. I'll say. I'll. I'll plug one thing, which is obviously this Friday is going to be badass. I'm playing two Salvatore Chirino pieces that I have only. I'm just sort of beginning to work on, and they're pieces that I find very exciting. And also, just that man handles time and handles concentration. And handles like contemplation to like a level of intensity that I find I feel very um, attached to. It's bloody hard, um, but I'm, I'm. It's sort of the beginning of a kind of Mount Everest where I'm going to do try try to do much much of his solo flute rep in the next few years. Um, in April, this is looking ahead a long way. On April twenty fourth, I'm doing a show at Constellation in Chicago, which is a fundraiser for a new commission that I'm um, having written, a piece written. Oh my God, I, I garbled all of that. Dave Remnick, superstar, punk guitarist and um, thrillingly interesting composer is writing me a solo flute piece. And Dave's voice is one that he seamlessly combines instrument and 
speech and song in a way that like he tells funny stories and he makes you feel a thing and his music is just like effortlessly funky but also like gnarly and complex and he's just like a a true individual unique soul he's writing me a solo piece it's based on the words that his wife says when she's asleep nice all of it is um, i mean the text is amazing we've already started working on the piece the piece is going to be premiered in the fall in chicago and new york but we need money and so i'm 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 excited to be able to present some work in progress things on that show i'm also going to play a little of a new piece that um chris sarone is writing for me and it's gonna be a fun show oh cool yeah there'll be games that's great i'm terrified of what i say in my sleep i sometimes talk in my sleep do you does your wife tell you what you say uh she doesn't and i don't know if it ever makes sense and i'm i'm really wishing i remembered there was a there was a big a big long monologue the other week when i feel like there wow. was like I was like trying to get to a gig. It might have been like with the Foo Fighters. Did Lauren tell you that the that this she made was it sound like said? really well? She like she was like you were talking last night, and she looked very concerned. And I actually happily really remembered the dream I was having, and it was um, it was a it was it was like a Scooby Doo episode of like it was like one of those I can't get to the gig right. things, <laughs> but it was like featuring the Foo Fighters and featuring you know. Amazing. Don Rickles, or like it was like weird old men comedians, and like I, I feel Just like, like stuff from your childhood. Sort I don't of thing. I, I don't even. It was bizarre. It was bizarre and comical. Um, so That's I at least so felt good great. that way. But I'm I'm always like I don't know. I have a recurring thing where I think there are spiders in the room, and I dash. I dash out of bed and run to the light and turn it on. And it's only then that I sort of like start to wake up, but it freaks my wife out. Oh, you get up and you get up and run. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm terrified and I like, I don't, I like shout out things. I'm convinced. And it's always different spiders. The spiders are always in different places. It's, and it's something that is, uh, maybe it happens every month or every couple of months, but it's just like, what is something coming is going on there. Wow. Yay, people are weird. Yeah. Okay. Well, hey man, thanks. This was this was fun and I'm happy that we're going to play music together again for a couple weeks. Thank you, Doug. <laughs> that was so nice. <laughs> okay, let's go get Gizmo. 